Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing that first, this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. You know, we're, talk, we're here as Peter, again, from a macro standpoint, uses the first epistle to tell us about the attacks that uh, are mounted by the enemy outside the church. And then, in Second Peter, he uses it um, his letter here to warn the believers of the attacks of the enemy from within. And they come to the ones who would uh, come in and, and uh, teach and live in uh, ways that are inconsistent with Christian doctrine and faith and practice, pretending to be believers when indeed they're really not. And he comes to this place and starts it out by using a word that he's all too familiar with in his letters. And I just want to make note of this. In these two books, in First Peter and Second Peter, that word beloved is used by Peter eight times. Beloved. Beloved, Peter was an apostle. Peter was one of the twelve. But he also identified himself uh, in, as, a, as a pastor in the fifth chapter of the first epistle. And I think he's speaking more as a pastor here than anything else to call him beloved. Beloved, just remember this. Latch hold of this. You are loved of God. You are loved of God. Let me just remind you of that. It's the same word, as you'll remember, that was spoken from heaven when the Lord was baptized and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It's the same word that was spoken in the Mount of Transfiguration when He said, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And the same thing that is said of God's Son is now said of repentant believers. We're loved of God. The Bible says that the love relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is the same love relationship that the Son has toward me and you. That's big. You imagine that? I imagine that. We're loved of God. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever get over that. Muse upon that. Meditate upon that. Let that sink in. But He's warning them of something that's going to be characteristic of the false teachers, and we certainly see it today. And that is this notion that judgment's not coming. Let's just get settled in here, you know. After let's don't get worked up about all this judgment business and this, uh, you know, wrath to come and, and and all of that. It's not happened, and the things go on the way they're going. It's the sun comes up in the morning, and it sets in the evening, and if things are just going according to plan, and this creative order and this system that's been put in place is just going to keep operating on and on and on. And you Christians, you guys, don't let's don't be those who get all worked up about that. And so, I'm going to outline this this morning by three points. And certainly, we've got to make them all start with the same letter. Sober is the one, first one, then suppression, and then sovereignty. Soberness, suppression, and sovereignty. But let's look at it. We're to be sober-minded. We're not supposed to be drunk with that kind of, that kind of notion. We need to be very much aware and sober-minded that judgment is coming. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. So he said, Beloved, let me, let me remind you of this. In this second epistle, I want to stir up your mind by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words that we've spoken and have been spoken all along and the commandment of us 
the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that commandment is repentance and faith in Him, that scoffers will come in the last days. He said, listen, pay attention, wake up, don't slumber. In the eve of the last presidential election, or the one before last, I was, um, this has nothing to do with politics, but I was stirred one night uh, in my spirit. And I got up the next morning, and, and the election was two weeks away or so. And it has nothing to do with candidates, it has nothing to do with ideology or anything like that. But you know that America is on a different course than it was once on. You understand that. Okay. And I was, I was asking the Lord, you know, every bit of it is messed up. What, what are we to do? What are we to make of this as believers? What are we to, how are we to process this? And I'm telling you, when I got up that morning to take a shower, I was in my quiet time, I was probably in somewhere like Philippians. I wasn't in Isaiah. And I got in the shower that morning and the Lord just said, I, to put in my spirit, Isaiah 24, 19. I couldn't more tell you what Isaiah 24, 19 said than the man in the moon. I've read it before, but I had no idea what Isaiah 24, 19. But the question that I was posing was, Lord, I said, Lord, as I get in here and get ready to spend some time with you early this morning, give me a trajectory. Just give me a trajectory. And it was Isaiah 24, 19. So I'm in the shower and I'm trying to ask him, I said, is, this a, is that me or is that you? I mean, uh, and so Isaiah 24, 19, Isaiah 24, 19, Isaiah 24, 19. He just kept on, I was harassed by it. Hurry up and took the shower. Couldn't wait to get into the Bible to see what it said. And look at Isaiah 24, 19. Look what it says. Isaiah 24, 19. Are you there? This, this was my take, at least this far, on interpreting what God was saying to me this morning, that morning through His Word. Not through some vision. I didn't get up and see the sky turn different and the light come down or anything like that. Just an impression about a Bible verse to read. But look what it says. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaking exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and it shall totter like a hut, and its transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. And I stepped back from that and I said, Lord, the issue is this. It has nothing to do with who wins this election. It has to do with this. This world is the Titanic, and it's going under. And we as Christians need to quit trying to rearrange the furniture on the Titanic. And we need to get on the deck of the Titanic and yell out, Get in the lifeboat! Because God sent a lifeboat. This thing is about to be 2,000 feet above the, below the surface of the, of the water. It's coming to an end. This earth as we know it, a new heaven and a new earth is coming. And just because that hadn't happened yet, and just because everything seems to be in set in motion, that one day is just a repeat performance of the other, does not mean that it's not going to. But the scoffer would say, oh no, things are going to continue. But tell you something, the second coming meant a lot to the early church. The second coming of Christ, the day of Jesus, the, the Bible calls it the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when judgment is going to come and the, and the climax of which will be the return of Christ to the earth. We're going to do the Lord's Supper here in a moment. And not just part of the Lord's Supper, but integral to the Lord's Supper is that we do this to remember His death till He comes. This meant so much to the early church that when they greeted one another, you know what they would say to one another? Maranatha. Instead of saying hello, they go, Maranatha. Maranatha. You know what that means? It means, Lord, come quickly. You ever noticed, I've noticed this in cultures, when we're dealing with others, in other cultures, third world cultures like in Kenya, it seems like the believers over there are more excited about the second coming than we are. I was talking to Andrew about it this morning when we were setting up in here. I said, son, you know why that is? Because we've got it so good here. But that's probably coming to a close. And you know what? If that advances the gospel, well and fine. 
well and fine. Because here's the deal. Maranatha, the first words recorded in the Bible that man ever spoke to God was, I heard you in the garden and I hid from you. And at the end of the Bible, the last words spoken from man to God are, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We went from hiding from Him to longing for Him because in the middle is Jesus. And He reconciled us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maybe we were to go back to using that greeting. And Chad, but you come up and you're toting that bass guitar. Well, Lane was carrying it this morning. And there you were with the amp. I said, man, Lane, you going to play the bass guitar this morning? And she comes up and maybe I ought to look up at Lane and say, Lane, Maranatha to you this morning. Jesus, come! Come quickly. That's how much it meant. We need to fan the flames of anticipation and biblical truth and the hope that our hope rests on and do the same thing and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's a game breaker. That means everything different about how we pray, how we witness, how we live, how we spend, how we invest, and everything that we do changes the moment we press into that. Amen? Amen. So, they would greet each other and say, Maranatha, be sober, wake up, pay attention. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is coming. We're in a day now where the scoffers are gathering around the bottom of the ark and saying, what in the world are you doing with your life? You've come up with this notion that a flood's coming? A flood, a worldwide flood that's going to wipe us all out? You're senile. You've lost your mind. And this lunatic, as soon as the downpour started, all of a sudden became the wisest man on the face of the earth. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. Will you look with me there? Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. Be sober, dear ones. Be sober. He's coming again. Be sober. He's coming again. God has committed judgment to the Son. Look what it says in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. Many verses like this. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. This is the Lord. He's coming back, dear ones. He's coming back. But the scoffer would say this. The scoffer is the one who treats lightly something that ought to be taken seriously. Ha! Ha! Oh, come on. We'll give lip service to it and let you guys talk about it and what have you. But really, why do you get so worked up about it? It's been said before that a person's lifestyle highly influences their theology. That's absolutely true. And this is, this is the pathology of the scoffer. He's left with one thing. He's got a dilemma. You either, you either say, okay, I'm going to repent and walk in repentance and agree with God against myself and walk with Him. Or I'm going to change the word around so I can keep living the way I enjoy living. I'm either going to change it or deny it. I'm going to take parts of it and I'll say, that sounds good. It's smorgasbord Christianity. I like that, but I don't care anything for that. But I like that, and I don't care anything for that. I'd rather not have that. And so go along in the buffet-style Christianity and say, we'll take this part, but we don't like that part. What's our motivation? It's very simple. See, we're to be sober-minded. The earth is going to reel to and fro like a drunkard. It's going to totter like a hut. And it shall fall and it shall not rise again. It's not. We have, we're not smart enough to pull this off. We're not going to get out of here alive. We cannot do it. It has been judged. It is groaning with birth pains right now. Longing for its redemption because along with the curse of man and the sin that we brought into this world, the earth was cursed with it. And the creative order is something different than it was before. And God's going to fix that. But He's not going to fix that by making this better. He's going to fix that by destroying this and replacing it with that which is better. Praise His name. He's coming again. 
Practically speaking, what should that mean to you and I? What should it mean to you and I about our influence? What should it mean to you and I about how we live? We're going to get into that next week because the Apostle gets into it. But just to whet our appetite, shouldn't that be a game changer about everything that we do? All our priorities and what now matters to me is what matters to Him. And what matters to me before I met Him no longer matters to me because it doesn't matter to Him. Hmm. Sober. God wants to wake us up. Oh, dear ones, Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus, even so. Lord, come quickly. And second, the day of the Lord is spoken of directly or referred to in every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John. So 25 of the 27 books of the New Testament speak of the day of the Lord. You think it's a priority in the heart of God? I think so. I think so. The weight of it's there. It's evident. He's coming again. He's coming again. Let's be sober. Let's wake up to that. Let's not reel to and fro like the earth is going to and totter like a hut. Let's be sober-minded, vigilant, knowing that the day is coming. Let's look with anticipation, and then in our anticipation, let's point people through the power of the Holy Spirit to Christ, to other believers and beyond, to those who don't yet believe. But look what it says about the scoffer. Look what it says about the scoffer. It says, knowing the last days, scoffers will come. These are people who don't take seriously that which should be taken seriously. They have contempt for God's Word. They're in contempt of court, if you will. That will come in the last days and will walk according to their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything keeps going as it was from the beginning of creation. This they willfully forget. Look at that word right there. For this... They willfully forget. Now, I did some messing and gomming with that word right there and looked at the different translations of where it's said. But it but but it it really does mean best I can tell the best way to to to, to translate that in the English is is they are willingly ignorant of what they know is to come. Now, where does that come from? Well, it's spoken of by Paul. And in the Romans studies, we've been going through this with some of you guys. But look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. They willfully forget. They willfully forget. They willfully forget. They choose to forget. And this is the way the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, put it uh, in the Romans letter. So, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Here's what it is. It's this simple. They suppress what they know of God and push it down. In the margin of your Bible, somebody might, some, of, some of them might say, hold it down. Every time God pops up, they push it down. Every time, that God, every time anything about eternity pops up, push it down. Anything that comes up about guilt or conviction, push it down. Suppress it. And they're constantly doing this thing. I remember it at uh, Chuck E. Cheese where I've spent all of our retirement money. Uh, there's, a, there's a little game in there where they have these little, uh, these little uh, you know what I'm talking about? The, the, what are the gophers? You know, you know, you're going, wham, 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 wham. And they stick their heads up and then one will pop up and you're trying to see how many you can do with that big old mallet. You ever done that? See, y'all have it because you've done it. Okay, so, and so uh, we're over there and I guess the last time was Paul. And we're no longer having enough money to go. We're all out of money. The last time it was Paul. We were going, wham, 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 wham. This is what the unregenerate man spends his life doing is that every time something pops up that reminds him that there is a God and because there is a God, he's a sinner. And because he is a sinner, judgment's coming. He's got to go wham and knock that thing down again. And he'll put one quarter in there and one token after another to keep pushing that down. Because why? Because the notion that God is and judgment is coming means that it gets in the way of the enjoyment of his sin. And therefore, if I'm going to keep enjoying my sin, i got to kick God out of everything. 
And God has revealed His way. To, he's revealed Himself two ways to every man, woman, boy, and girl. Whether they live in the Amazon River Basin, or whether they live in Baxley, Georgia, where I'm from, or whether they live in Iceland. Every man knows that God is. How? Through conscience and creation. And these are the two things cited in Second Peter that say you deny. You know God made this. You are not foolish enough to believe that we crawled out of primordial slime through some two cells that decided to get together one day and create all of this. You know better than that. That is an elaborate scheme not to arrive at the truth, but to deny it. It is not a search for the truth. It is suppression of obvious truth that a little boy or girl can see in a flower. We've talked about it before. There's no such thing as an atheist. There are people who claim atheism, but there's no such thing as an atheist because everybody knows God how? The conscience and creation. What are the two that are spoken of here in Second Peter? Look at them. So what do you do? Well, you suppress what God has revealed of Himself through both those things. Peter joins with Paul. He says, here's what the scoffer will do. You know, my goodness, is this more up to date in today's paper? Really? Is it not? Do we not see this going on all over the place? The two things and the two ways in which every man knows God. Every man. Please, please understand that the Bible does not does not argue for the existence of God. It assumes it. The Bible starts with the existence of God because you know it. Why don't we quit doing it? God is! Why? Because you are. And this creation that was made. And you know there's right and you know there's wrong. And who gave you that? Conscience means with knowledge. Means you sin with knowledge. You know it. You know it's wrong. And the conscience bothers us. It's a God-given gift to lead us to what? Repentant faith. So what do we got to do? You know, keep living like that. You got to suppress all that. Push it down. That's bothering me. It's getting in the way. So we will suppress it. And the two things that are suppressed by the unregenerate man, the scoffer joins with them. The scoffer. Now this is the person who claims to be a Christian. And the scoffer joins with him. And what does he say? Look what he says. Oh, come on. And Peter says, listen to this. You have willfully forgotten. What is that? You have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. You might want to put in the margin of your Bible to your study notes. Romans 1.18 beside that verse. You have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. You willingly, willfully forget that by the Word of God, the heavens were of old creation and the earth standing out of water and in the water. God created this. The Bible says on the second day of creation, the upper waters, a canopy that covered the earth, was created by God, and the lower waters, which were underground fountains and lakes and reservoirs and seas, were created by God. And then on the third day, He separated them from one another and dry earth appeared and God did that by His Word. And you know it. You know it. And you are willfully ignoring it. You are willfully ignoring it. Why? Because I've thought through the issues and now I've come to a level of higher reasoning. What is that but a cover? for the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. To press into that means I've got, I'm accountable. To press into that means there's judgment coming and there is a judge. He's the creator and He is the lawgiver and He is the judge. You remember when we were looking in Romans chapter 1 and we were talking about the way things are right now. And you remember that we observed that in the Bible there are five different categories of the wrath of God. Do you remember what they were? Anybody? Or what they are? Hmm? That's the judgment. Wrath. The wrath of God. Remember the wrath? Five categories of wrath? 
You remember what they were? Consequential wrath. You read what you sow. Remember that? Okay. Then, um, then end times wrath. That's going to come in the great tribulation. Remember that? And then um, eternal hell. Eternity. God's wrath for eternity. And then um, abandonment. It is when, you remember we talked about it, that the secular man, the humanist, that is taken over in our culture, the spirit of humanism, where you pound your fist and say, God, I want you out of my life. The fool has said in his heart, No, God. Remember that there is, it's added for translation purposes. You transliterate that, it says, The fool has said in his heart, No, God. I know you're there, but I don't want any part of you. I want you out of my life. I want you out of my finances. I want you out of my government. I want you out of my choices. I want you out of my womb. I want you out of my everything. I want you out of my morals. I want you out of my schools. I want you out of my everything. I want you out. And in the wrath of abandonment, that's the other one, God says, one day, okay. Okay. And He starts. God gives them up. God gives them up. God gives them up. It's the wrath of abandonment. We're experiencing that right now as a nation. Exactly, we're in the, right in the middle of that right now. Doesn't abandon his people. Never. And then cataclysmic wrath, which is the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Tower of Babel, so on and so forth. God's cataclysmic wrath. He saith this creation, you know, you're willfully forgetting that God created everything. Let me ask you this. If He created everything and He did, do you have a problem believing that He could somehow or another intervene in creative order and, and end it? That really doesn't present a problem for me. And I'm not a person of great faith. I'm not saying that. But if He created everything, and the Bible says He's intimately involved in His creation, and everything is upheld by the Word of His power, and in Jesus Christ all things consist and are held together, do you know they have a theory called the string theory that says we don't know what holds matter together. So they invented this theory that there are invisible strings that hold matter together. And all they had to do was go to the Bible. Because in Colossians, the Bible says that Jesus holds all things together. It saved a lot of trouble. That's Jesus. They can't see Him. But that's Him. Holding everything together by the Word of His power. And they're saying, you're, you're willfully forgetting that. And if He created everything, if He created everything, He can destroy at His discretion. Just like that. Just because He hasn't done so is not because of why you think He hasn't. You think He hasn't done so because you've come up with a theology that says He won't and can't. And the only reason that he hasn't done so is because he's given people time to repent. That's the reason. And so he says, okay, so suppression. We see that we are to be sober. We see what he suppresses. But he suppresses also. He's saying, okay, first of all, wrath is not coming because we're suppressing the truth that God made all of this. Moreover, we're also suppressing the truth of the fact that God has imposed his wrath before. How did He do it? Verse 6. Well, the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same Word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Creation. It just goes along as it pleases because we're going to willfully suppress the fact that God's sovereign over it and involved in it. The Bible says that God just didn't create and get His hands off and go, you're on your own. He's involved in it. Okay? So, we're going to suppress that. And we're also going to suppress our conscience because what gave reason for the flood? Why did God impose the flood? It was judgment. Why do you impose judgment? Because there is sin. So, we're going to suppress what we know about Him in creation. And we're going to suppress what we know about Him in conscience. We're going to push it down. And we're going to downsize those attributes. We might talk about them every now and then just to appease uptight people. 
who might get uptight about the Bible. And every now and then we'll talk about it. We'll throw it out there. You know, as a, as a little something to kind of appease them. Here, a little bone, you know, to the people who are uptight about the Bible and uptight about the need for people to repent. But let's suppress it. Let's downplay it. Let's don't do that. Let's don't get into all that. Will everybody get nervous and upset? Hey, the truth of Christ's coming for the believer is not meant to upset us. It's meant to comfort us. But it should upset those who are not ready for it. He's coming again. He's saying in, con- in creation, let's suppress the fact that He's sovereign over it. He did it and He can do anything He wants to with it, Ashley. Then, with conscience, let's suppress the truth that judgment ever came on this earth. And since it, never, since it didn't come on this earth, Noah was a fanatic. It's a nice story. And let's just suppress that because our conscience bothers us for what gave rise to the need for the flood in the first place. And then said, this is going to be reserved. It's being reserved. You make reservations for things you plan to do. This thing has been reserved for judgment. And it's going to be reserved for fire. We're told that the elements that make up the world are stored with power. We know they are. And, and the only reason they don't explode now is because of the Word of God's power and the power of God's Word. And there's coming a day, not when men are going to push the button. You know the button. The button. The button. You know the button? All the movies have been made about the button. Don't push that button! You know, because if you push that button, the nuclear holocaust is coming. There's going to be a button pushed. But God's going to push it. And the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. It's going to happen. It's been reserved for judgment. The ruler of this world has been judged. And judgment is coming upon this earth. And we can suppress that. We can write that off. We can excuse it away. Or we can make excuses for God or apologize for Him and His righteous nature. But His righteous nature demands judgment. And His righteous judgment is righteous. His righteous judgment is just. I see, I told, I, I preached a funeral for a, a, a family member of mine uh, once. And there were a bunch of people at the funeral. I'm talking about it, this guy died young. And I had no confidence in his salvation. Not that I needed it, but I had none whatsoever. And I remember I was shaking like a leaf. Because here my family is out there, you know. And I'm going to get up there and preach somebody to heaven. You can't do that anyway. I told, I told Bruce this last night. So I went in the bathroom. I'll never forget it. I went in the bathroom and I was just washing my face, just trying to get over the nervousness of the moment. It must have been five or six hundred people out there, you know, people all over the community, and and, and I'm just just frightened. And I said, "Oh God, help me! I don't I don't know what to, I don't know what to I don't know." What to. And the Lord said, "Rich man and Lazarus." And I just looked up in the mirror and I said, "The rich man and Lazarus." That's it. That's the answer. Because the rich man was in hell. And what was his desire? Evangelism. Well, you can, listen, okay? If there's a gap between here and there, and it's impassable, and I can have no relief, at least do this, Lord. Send Lazarus back from the dead and have him preach the gospel that I rejected to my brothers because they're coming here. They live just like I live. Their priorities are ordered just like mine. They're coming here. And they'll listen if somebody was raised from the dead. And we give and we give a great biblical, straight from the words of Jesus, treatise on the power of God's Word. And He says, if they don't believe my Word, they won't believe if somebody came back from the dead. And I realized, wherever this loved one's at, First of all, I'm not the judge. But wherever he's at, if he's in heaven, he wants people to come there. But if he's in hell, he wants the people to avoid where he is. So I got up there and said, with biblical authority, if my loved one was standing right here, right now, here's what he'd say to you. Because either way, his message would be the same. 
Bruce said, hallelujah. I said, amen. God settled that with me. I had so much peace when I walked in there. As I realized, you know what? We just get to the truth because it doesn't matter about him anymore because he's dead. I don't mean that ugly. As far as eternity is concerned, that's been settled. But you know what? We have an opportunity now to enjoy our salvation, to let it take root, and to proclaim it to others around us, remind each other of it, stir each other up to love and good works, and point people to Jesus Christ. God's going to push the button one day. It could be, you know, we don't know. It could be it could be an atomic holocaust. It could just be God saying, okay, it's time for all the things to come unravel. <laughs> Take less than the breath from God. He spoke it by His breath. He can destroy it by His breath. And He's going to. It's going to happen. So we see that we need to be sober. We see the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. What? About what we know through conscience and creation. There it is. And nothing new under the sun. And then we see the sovereign, supernatural grace of God. Oh, let's don't leave here without that. Amen? Is look what he says. He said, Beloved, now we're talking to the beloved here. The scoffer, let's move on. Beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Oh, there's the crescendo. That's where He's building up to. Let me remind you of something. The reason things appear to be in this cycle of unchanging natural order is not because God's distant or removed or didn't have anything to do with that which is here. It is doing that because He's holding off judgment to give everybody an opportunity to repent. You willfully forget. You willfully forget the past. And you willfully forget what God's like. What's God like? The Bible says in Isaiah and Ezekiel 33:11 that God takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. Do you know that? Repent, the Lord says, and live. Repent and live. Oh man, repentance is the greatest word in the English language except for Jesus. God works in time, but he's certainly not limited by it. I got a friend of mine who says God's always on time, but seldom early. That's the truth. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that, based on our perception. But He's an on-time God. He's an on-time God. It'll happen when He gets ready for it to happen. But in the in the, in the interim, let's don't forget what has happened in the past. Let's don't get the, forget the truth of His Word. What it, the Word says about what the future holds, and let's don't forget. Oh, above all else, let's don't forget the character and nature of God. What is God like? Look at, um, there's a bunch of places we could go right here, but look at Jonah. Can you go with me to Jonah? Jonah, uh, chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse, like I said, now there's a bunch of places we can go. But... Chapter 4, end of verse 2. Verse 2 is a long one. Well, we'll look at verse 2. Chapter 4, Jonah, chapter 4, verse 2. Look at what Jonah knew about God. Jonah's in the belly of the whale, the belly of the fish. The belly of the fish, I'm sorry. The belly of the fish. And and uh, after after three days, you know he's called to, to deliver a message of repentance and faith to Nineveh, and they do repent. And look what he says. He prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. Look at this. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. 
slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents from doing harm. Oh, I know you to be like this. And I knew if you called me to go tell them the message of repentance, they would do it. Because this is what you're like. Aren't you grateful God's like that? I feel like I'm at the top of the list of all the people in order to be grateful that God's like that. I'm so grateful God's like that. I don't know what I deserve from God. Count me out of that. Give me mercy. And through His Son we get it. Amen? This is what you're like. This is what God's like. Look at Lamentations. Lamentations. We sang from Lamentations this morning. Mighty fortress is our God. What a wonderful song, huh? Lamentations chapter 3. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, but His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Look at verse 31. For the Lord will not cast out forever, for though He causes grief, yet He will show compassion. According to the multitude of His mercies, He will show compassion. The prodigal son came to the father and said, well, all I got coming for me at your death, I want it now. What he was saying to his father is, as far as I'm concerned, you're dead. That's how much you mean to me. You're dead. And everything I stand to get, when you do die, I want it now. Because in my mind, you're already dead. Can you imagine the broken heartedness of that? And the father did the best thing he could have done for him. He let him have it. Let him have it. Because when he got in the pig pen, the father knew what was going to happen. But you know what motivated him to get out of the pig pen? Well, he was—he got a good whiff of it. And what this smells like, and what I've become, and what I was, and what I've become has now been revealed. What I was has been revealed to me. You know what harassed him in that pig pen? It wasn't a warm meal, although he knew he could get one. It wasn't an income embedded in that pig pen was the goodness of his father. He said, you know what? I'm going to go home because my father is good. He was good enough to let me go. It was the character and nature of the father that drew him back. And that's what leads to salvation. We come into the reality how sorry we are. And then we find out how good God is. And we say, get me out of this pig pen. I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to live anymore. God's good. God is good. That should make the sinner shudder. And it should make the saint rejoice. But the sinner can shudder. And that shuddering can be turned to rejoicing through repentance. Mm-hmm. See that word when he says the Lord's not slack concerning... It's, it, here's what it means. You know what the word means when it says not willing that all should become repentant. Well, come to repentance. When that word says... Let's go look at it. I don't want you to forget this. And when you teach it to your children, don't forget this. Let's go over this. This is precious and powerful. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at what it says in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, 
but it's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what that word come means? Listen to me. That word means to make room for. God's made room. God's made a way. Make room. You know why? You know, you know why people repent? Because they make room for it. When you make room for repentance, what you're saying is, I stand in need of it. Now, to me and you as believers, is there something you need to make room for with Jesus this morning? As a believer? Is there something you and I need to make room for? See, if you're going to let Jesus in, He's not the one that's going to do the adjusting. It's going to be me and you that do the adjusting. Bitterness, unforgiveness, make room for Him. And the bitterness will go and He'll replace it with Himself. Fear, let go of it. Because if you fear God, you won't fear anything else. But if you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. Let go of it. He'll replace it with Himself. Sin, lusts, this is all the motivation of the scoffer. There's no room in my life for Jesus because I love my sin too much to make room. Make room. Let's make room. Come on in, Lord. You come in here and you do whatever you want to do. It's been said before that politically speaking, that Americans are professional. They're they 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 are uh, they're uh, by profession conservative and by practice liberal, and a lot of times I think we as Christians are by profession Christians, but in practice we're like atheists. My ideology and my liveology are very distant, and that needs to change. My orthodoxy and my orthopraxy are to be lining up with one another. And God makes room for repentance. The reason we're alive this morning is we can repent. God will let you repent this morning. If you're not saved, you can get saved this morning. Repentance toward God, faith in Jesus Christ. What is repentance? Repentance is to agree with God against yourself. It's to come to God's side against me. God, I no longer try to defend me. I'm going to get on your side against me and I agree with everything you say about me. I'm as vile and as wicked and it's deserving of judgment as wrath as you say I am. And I'm sorry. And put faith in Christ. And as believers, we got an opportunity to repent this morning. Is there something that's plaguing you that is widening the gap between your orthodoxy and your orthopraxy? Is that gap getting wider? Make your calling election sure, Peter said. Let's repent this morning. The Lord's Supper is a divine opportunity to repent to do an examination and say, Lord, would you examine my life and see if there's any anxious thought or offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting? And we can repent this morning. And our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy can start coming together. That's God's will. Let's ask God to search us this morning. Do you have the relationship? Are you in fellowship? Am I? I'm asking God. God dealt with me in the shower this morning. I've been up a long time today. I've been... God's just blessed me big time today. I'm so thankful. Showing me things that he didn't show he didn't show me to beat me up, he showed me to restore me. And let's let him do that work right now. And let's come to his table and let's celebrate the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate the fact, just give a little bit of thought of what it was like to be in the pig pen. Maybe you don't remember the pig pen enough, but the only reason to remember it is to remember the goodness of God who lifted you out of it. And then God said, here's what you need to willfully forget. Your past, <laughs> your sin, I've washed it away. It's gone through the blood of my son. If we can't sit at his table and rejoice this morning, we've lost sight of the reason and the privilege and the right to sit there. Get it back. Get it back today. Get it back. Don't pass. Go over collect $200 until you get that back. And then we can sit at this table and have a celebration of the death, burial, resurrection, and imminent return of Jesus Christ. Amen, Ashley.
He's coming again. Ashley, Maranatha. He's coming again. Let's pray. Brother Brian's going to come and lead us. Father, thank you so very much that we can sit at your table. I know there are exclusive tables all over the world. There are restaurants that we couldn't get in. I couldn't get in the parking lot. And if I tried to get in the parking lot, somebody probably had me a key and expect me to park in the car. Tables that are reserved in places of fine dining and tables that are reserved at corporate board meetings or tables that are reserved at, uh, at, at state houses in front of prominent and, and influential people. God, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that there's a reservation there for your children. And surely the placard must have, it must be that our names, it's a new name, and it must be, surely that must mean that that name is written in red. Hallelujah to your name. Thank you for the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, that we don't longer, as your repentant children, no longer live in the pig pen. I'm thankful, Lord, that you washed us and made us clean and made us free. Oh, what a reason to rejoice this morning. Profound worship. Please let it take place here. As we sit at this table. God, if there's any anxious thought or offensive way in us, if there's a pocket of disbelief in our life that you have showed us or stand ready to right now, God, I pray that we will seize the repentance that you are granting to us. That we will not be apathetic toward it, but we will seize it. And we'll repent this morning. Because you're not slack concerning your promises. It's some count slackness, but you're long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you for what this bread and what this cup represent. It's who they represent. The one who gave himself. And the great God who called him to do it. And the Holy Spirit who grants us the faith to repent and believe and understand through the Scriptures this great salvation. Thank you, Jesus.